at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today I'm very excited to have a conversation with who I regard as one of my biggest mentors in my whole career, Dr. Lorelai Lingard, who is a senior scientist and the founding director of our, our center. Lorelai, as many of you may know already, is a world-renowned scientist on the areas of team communication and collective co competence. And as I said, she's an extraordinary mentor to me and to many others in the field. So great to have you here. Welcome, Lorelai, to the Curiosity Habit. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to have this conversation today. So I'm going to start with um, something that I think you and I share in our stories, which is the idea that we come from a very different discipline from medical education. And for me, it took me a while to get my feet around, but I had the fortune to land in a community who helped me go through the process, which I think was a little bit different for you because you came at a time where the community was pretty small. So I was wondering if you can share with our listeners the story. What was it like for you to come from a different discipline and start growing the medical education community? Well, Syra, when I came to medical education, I was among the first rhetoricians to ever wander in. Wasn't the very first. There was actually someone else who had training in rhetoric at the University of Toronto when I was there, and that person was in more of an educational role, and I was in more of a research role. So I wasn't the very, very first, but I think I was probably the first to wander into the medical education research conversation. But I was very lucky to have my first role in what was then the Center for Education Research at University of Toronto, what is now the Wilson Center. And the Wilson Center already had um, a few other people who'd wandered in from other domains. So Glenn Regeer was already there. He'd wandered in from cognitive psychology. Stan Hamster was already there. He'd wandered in from from what I think was visual physics. Um, and so I didn't feel the odd person out, really. Uh, we were all strangers in a strange land. And the fact that I didn't arrive first, I think, is, is why my first few years were very comfortable years of adjustment, not painful years of adjustment. Because Glenn had been there for five years already. So Glenn showed me the pathway, um, had a sense of what lay ahead, gave me some foresight about challenges, about decisions I might have to make, about some of the intricacies of explaining who I was to this new community that I wanted really badly to join and, and to join well. I didn't want to be a wallflower. I wanted to be someone who was really part of the community and I will be forever grateful to Glenn for his early mentorship in those first five years to help me do that in an effective way. And from the discipline you're coming from, words are extremely important to you. Uh, we recently changed buildings or the, the space that we fill at the center. And I noticed, and you told me in your office, you have this quote, 
in your work, which I regard as very important to you to have it so visible. Can you share what the quote is about and why is it so, why is it so important to you for as a researcher? Yes. The quote that I have on my wall is a quote by Kenneth Burke. And the quote is, every way of seeing is a way of not seeing. And it is probably one of the foundational premises of all my work. The idea that we see things in certain ways, not because that's the way they are, but because that's the way we're oriented to see them. And language is the linchpin of that. How we describe things isn't just a reflection of how they are. It's a construction of how they are for us and a construction of how they will be going forward because we have taken a certain stance on them in the language we've used. So that is sort of an overarching byline, I guess, if you will, of, of my approach to the world and my approach to the kinds of questions I want to ask about the health professions education research world. I'm interested in ways of seeing. I'm interested in dominant ways of seeing. I'm interested in unconscious and tacit ways of seeing. I want to bring those to the surface to understand their origins, their consequences, and sometimes to have conversations about what if it were not so? What if we saw this differently? How could that be made to happen? And what would the role of language be in allowing us to see things differently? That's, that's the gist of everything I do. Right. And, and at the time when you were introducing those ideas around team communication and on top of that, a different way of doing research, which was qualitative research, um, it strikes me as, yes, you want, you want people to start thinking about team communication in a different way from what they were used to, which might provoke certain discomfort, I imagine. What were some of the challenges you faced or lessons that you learned as you were trying to be the one paving the way to help people think differently? There are so many. I'm, I'm going through my mental data bank of memories, trying to pull out the ones that are appropriate oh. <laughs> and also um, illustrative. As you can imagine, any, any researcher who comes in with, number one, a different theoretical orientation to the world. I was a rhetorician, very different theoretical orientation. Number two, a different methodological orientation towards the world. I was predominantly a naturalistic, qualitative social scientist, not a, a positivist experimentalist. Um, so if you come in with that just completely different orientation, you will over and over again have conversations that are jarring, and sometimes that jarring moment uh, resolves into a really great and engaging and wide-ranging conversation. And sometimes it just, it just turns into a, an abrupt stop. I had many conversations that turned into an abrupt stop in my first couple of years. And that was in part my own immaturity at being able to translate all knowledge is a product of translating across ways of seeing. So what I got good at early on with the help of people who were already in the community was translating my different way of seeing into a language that other people could at least hear in the first instance. Um, and then if they got past hearing it, 
they could potentially reflect on and engage in it and ask me questions that I could understand because we were building a language together. I think one of the things that got easier after let's say five or six or seven years was being able to decode the questions I got after presentations. I would get questions that I didn't really understand where they were coming from in the first few years. But as soon as I understood where they were coming from, I could decode them and engage in a meaningful way instead of just saying, bias doesn't apply in my research. That's not an engaging response to the question about, isn't your research biased because you just interviewed the people who were interested in being interviewed. I needed to decode that and understand where it came from so that then we could get beyond the, the mismatch in language to some kind of bigger conversation. And I appreciate that you're sharing that because um, at least for me, when I came in, I thought I needed to have the answers ready right away and didn't appreciate that it takes time and that language is not only important in the communication field of research, but also in any research field. So thank you for sharing that. The other part of your uh, life and interest as a researcher is writing. And I guess everybody in the community knows about your passion about writing and your passion about teaching people to write more persuasively. I'm not sure that people know a lot or a little bit about when did that start for you? Um, what's the, what motivated you to get into write, writing? Because most people might think that is your discipline, but is there a personal story behind your passion about writing? I don't know that it's a personal story um, in the way that you mean personal, um, but it's a true story, so I'll tell it. When I was a graduate student, a doctoral student, um, the research assistant kind of roles that you would have to help put bread on your table were often related to teaching writing. So I had a number of these um, research assistant or sessional instructor roles related to teaching writing in the university. Um, and they're very difficult roles. They're demanding, they're time consuming, and they're not rewarding. The instructors who teach writing at the university level are very rarely tenure stream professors who reap the rewards of academia. So I sort of swore to myself as I neared the end of my doctorate that I would not take a sessional instructor job teaching writing at the university. Um, and in fact, there was one waiting in the wings for me where I did my doctorate and I didn't take it. I looked for tenure stream jobs and, and ended up um, not getting the tenure stream job I imagined in a department of rhetoric, but getting the, my first job at the University of Toronto in medical education. Um, so it's kind of ironic to me that fast forward 10 or 15 years into my academic life and I was back to realizing the necessity to teach writing, to teach writing to health researchers generally and health professions education researchers specifically because they desperately needed resources and everyone was just sort of saying, well, go write and publish and we'll promote you if you do that well without really giving people resources, mentorship, community to do that. So to me, it, it makes me giggle a little bit that I started my professorial career saying never again. And I will likely end it with all of my efforts around academic and research writing being more than 50% of what I do now. Right. 
So you just said something that uh, got my attention. It's like you were maybe looking for being a professor in the field of rhetoric, but landed in medical education somehow. Absolutely. Any chance that we get a gist of that story? Yeah. So one of my earliest and, and most painful disappointments on the job market was that I made the shortlist and interviewed for an assistant professor position at the University of Waterloo um, with a focus on rhetoric. That was the job I had trained for. Not only did I not get it, it was a failed search. They didn't hire anyone. What kind of a slap in the face is that to anyone who's been in that situation? So I was really gutted by that. Um, and it was partly that experience that made me start looking a little more broadly because there are very few assistant professor of English jobs in the world ever now and then. And I thought, okay, well, let's look at something else. And the clinician who I had collaborated with at the University of California at San Francisco in my doctorate, um, a Dr. Rick Haber, who was an internist there uh, and a very beloved and skilled medical educator in their community, he actually sent me the ad for the job that I got at the Wilson Center. And I read it and I emailed him back and said, well, this sounds really interesting, but can you tell me what this phrase evidence-based medicine means? <laughs> I used it a bunch of times and it seems important. <laughs> so really, I think many people who come to our academic community from another domain have a, have a similar sort of accident, accidental pathway that brings them here. It's not what you necessarily thought you'd grow up to be. Right. And I, I, I just forgot for a moment that you did your PhD almost in, in the area of medicine. What was that about? My doctoral research was a study of how third-year clerks in internal medicine learn to tell the story of the patient during morning rounds in the genre that's called the oral case presentation. And I was interested in that because one of the premises of rhetorical theory is that when you learn to talk a certain way, you learn to think a certain way. So I was exploring how do they learn to talk this way about patients when they present them to the rest of the teaching team in internal medicine? And how is that shaping their values, their knowledge, their attitudes, their behaviors? So that was my doctoral research. Okay. So on that, in that topic, did you just say like the way you talk is, I guess, the way you think about something. Um, I, I know from the conversations we have at the center that you regard as very important for scientists or some scientists to have a place at the policy table. Could you inspire us with a little bit of um, why is it that is so important to you? And, and I guess it's not for everybody. How can someone say, hmm, maybe I should try this? I think it is important for everyone. When I say that language is constructive, that it not just describes our world, but it also constructs the world, it makes the world what it is when we decide to call it certain things. I don't just mean that in clinical settings or in educational settings. In fact, some of the most powerful forms of language are regulatory language. So if we can, if, if researchers like us can, can commute, I don't know if we'll ever really sit at those tables in a formal way, but if we can tell the story of our work to regulators, to policymakers, 
um, to leaders in professional organizations, if we can tell them the story of our work and get them to refine the language of policies, of frameworks, of guidelines, of regulations, to, re to reflect the nuances of our knowledge better, that's how we change behavior. So if the CanMeds framework, for instance, um, can include language about the competence of the collective, then somewhere downstream that is going to filter into learning objectives at medical schools, into assessment instruments, into feedback conversations that, that faculty and trainees have on the wards. I think it's one of the most powerful places to change language is those kind of governing discourses. In the same um, vein of having to go into a policy table, it's, it's kind of navigating a, a new context or a new environment. So when, when people come to, to the medical education community, we all experience challenges and situations that sometimes make, make us go, oh, I got a really good lesson here. Could you share with us maybe one or two stories of those very memorable situations that you have gone through that have given you the most valuable lessons about being a researcher? So I, among the many lessons that I have learned, I will take one from early in my career and one from later in my career. Early in my career, I learned that you can't change how people see the world by giving them information. I could give people the most clearly described research results and not change their thinking about, for instance, how um, team members in critical care should communicate for effective collaboration. The, the data in and of themselves, regardless of their quality and how rigorously I treated them, the data are not convincing. It's the story that's convincing. And that was a lesson I had to learn over and over again because as a qualitative humanities-based scholar coming into medicine, I actually tried not to tell stories for a lot of years. I tried to give very stark, um, empirical research presentations, like I thought I was supposed to be giving, like everybody else was giving. And it wasn't until I think I developed a little bit more confidence, a sense that, okay, you have some credibility and you're a good storyteller and you're not using that skill. And until you use that skill, people are not going to listen to you. So that was a lesson I learned early. I continue to learn it because every once in a while I, I fall back into thinking, well, it's a great study and the data are really strong. So just listen to me. And it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to meet people where they are, characterize a problem in a way that resonates with them because we might all say, yeah, X is a problem, but I don't really care about it as much as you do. I have to find what you care about in relation to that problem and tell the story that way. So that's the early lesson. A later lesson, um, a handful of years ago, I had become lulled into thinking that qualitative research had arrived in health professions education scholarship that it was no longer something that was a second-class citizen and that um, if you did the work well, 
it would be taken at face value. And I had a young uh, colleague who was doing graduate work with me present and be very poorly received by the audience. And I realized I had not prepared that individual for that. In the way that I used to prepare people 10 years before, I'd never let anyone get up to a microphone without saying, okay, here's all the combative responses you could get just because people don't get qualitative research and don't value it. I hadn't done that preparation and I hadn't done it because I had not encountered those combative responses for a number of years. But just because I hadn't encountered them didn't mean they'd gone away. Junior people were still encountering them and I was blind to that. So that, that was a that was an unfortunate lesson for, the, for my junior colleague. Um, it's too bad I needed to relearn that. I got lulled into thinking everybody loves it because I had enough seniority that people weren't walking up to the microphone in the plenary room to tell me they thought qualitative research was crap. Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because there is a, an area that I'm going to call your next curiosity from what I understand. And I'm finding really fascinating because I never ever thought from the 11 years that I've known you so far that you will dip your toes into quantitative work somehow. And you're, you're moving in that direction. And I'm not sure that our listeners know about it at all. So would you mind sharing with us uh, what is that next curiosity for you? And especially how is it feeling like? So that is one of my next curiosities. I have three, and I can tell you about the other two after, awesome. if you wish. Yeah. Um, but one of them is this, you know, to take my body of work on collective competence and the, the idea that we need individually competent team members, but that's insufficient for quality care in a complex collaborative situation. We also need collective competence. I've been... I've been on that soapbox for over a decade. I've been doing empirical research. I've been trying to tell compelling and convincing keynote stories that draws from that body of work to get people to think about the competence of the collective. And everybody nods their heads. Like nobody anymore says, no, I don't buy that. Everybody buys it. But it has really not made any inroads into the assessment conversation. And if you don't make inroads in the assessment conversation, you actually don't change training. If assessment remains fundamentally individualist, then we can have these conversations about collective competence, but it's not really going to change things in a way that, that alters medical education meaningfully. So I decided that I would need to try and do some of this myself, which is a very scary proposition because I don't know anything, well, anything. I know just enough about numbers and measurement and assessment to be truly dangerous. Not enough to really make meaningful knowledge, just enough to make a bit of a mess. So I have partnered with, with people who do know about that. My most significant partner in this enterprise is Dr. Stephanie Seabach-Sire, who's now at Stanford University. She's a measurement scientist. She did a postdoc with me at the center. And from that postdoc three years ago, we have incrementally been doing research together, learning about one another's ways of seeing the world and, and getting to the point now where we're funded by a Stemler grant to try and develop 
uh, a robust, theoretically informed assessment instrument that would allow us to give clinical trainees feedback on their interdependent performance, their contribution to the collective. That'll be a very novel thing. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that we'll end up with anything usable in our hands at the end of the, this two-year study. Uh, but we're going to give it a very good try and we have a good team around us. I have done quantitative research once before in my career. Um, my biggest CIHR grant over 10 years ago was to do a multi-site study of the surgical team briefing um, in, and to collect qualitative and quantitative outcomes related to what gets better or worse. Um, when you ask surgical team members to preoperatively discuss the case. And having done that and having done a good bit of work and, and being proud of the work we did, nevertheless, I walked away from that saying, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Here I am 10 years later thinking, okay, I guess I need to, I need to try again with some um, quantitative assessment outcomes-based kind of it's, it's an uneasy situation for me. I feel like I'm out on a limb. Oh, and what about the other two? Yeah, so, so, so the interdependence assessment instrument is, is one curiosity that I'm going to spend five years on probably. Uh, there are two others. Um, another one is, is really related to my interest in language. I am spending more and more time writing about metaphor. So a metaphor is a particularly interesting way of seeing. It's where we, we see one thing in terms of its comparison to another thing. And metaphors are everywhere. We are hopelessly entangled with them as human beings, but they're also everywhere in medical education. So um, I wrote a book chapter a year or so ago with Mark Goldschmidt on metaphors of clinical supervision. Um, I just this week made a video recorded lecture for an event in Europe on um, metaphors that make us uncomfortable in relation to clinical supervision and how uncomfortable metaphors can be really powerful ways of changing our way of seeing the world and making us have conversations that we've maybe been avoiding. So that, that's the second one, this sort of exploration of metaphor, which really does take me back to my roots in a, in a kind of a nice way. And then the third curiosity is related to the interest in writing. But it's a study that I'm doing with Chris Watling on the writer's voice and um, how writers in, our, in health research broadly why is it that some writers have a recognizable voice? Those writers who you pick up the piece of writing and before you even look at the author list, you know who's written this because you, you hear their voice. And I think it's so amazing that with the research manuscript genre being such an uptight genre, doesn't give you a lot of room to, to flourish and, and be creative and put your own personal stamp on it, but some writers do. They manage to be convincing and unique, um, memorable at the same time. Chris and I are doing a study trying to articulate what that is. What is writer's voice? How do some people get it? Could we teach people 
to get it sooner or, or develop it um, even more profoundly than they already have. So that, that's my third curiosity. And I can tell that that gets you really excited just by your face. <laughs> it's, it's so great to see that. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to see what comes out of those, all those studies because each of them have a very, very unique angle. So thanks for sharing again. And in, to just end this conversation, I always ask the similar question to everybody just because I, we are all humans and we always, always have this little aspect of our lives that most people don't know. If you were to choose one thing that most people don't know about you as a person that makes you the researcher you are now, what will that be? I have the same group of 10 girlfriends that I've had since elementary school. And what does that have to do with the researcher that I am? Um, I care very deeply about people and relationships. And so I think as a researcher and as a mentor, that, that comes out. And in the kinds of research questions I ask, it comes out too. I'm interested in relationships among healthcare professionals. And I think that's tied to the value that I place on relationships in my own life. Oh, fascinating. I never connected those two pieces. So that's great. Thank you so much, Lorelai. It was really, really a personal pleasure for me to have you here in this episode. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. And to everyone, thank you for listening and see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syrah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.